You are now listening to the Big Data Beard. Our analytics superheroes assemble. This episode was recorded at Disney's Data and Analytics Conference 2019 in Orlando, Florida. Welcome back to another episode of the Big Data Beard Podcast. I am Brett, and with me is Corey Minson. Corey, how are you doing today? I'm wonderful, bro. Awesome. And we have a very special guest today. I'm really excited about this. We have McKay Curtis, who is a senior principal in the decision science team with Disney. How are you doing today? Doing well. Awesome. So do me a favor. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what your role is at Disney? Sure. So uh, like you mentioned, I'm on the decision science team. Uh, I like to think of our team as uh, building the mathematical and algorithmic guts of uh, decision science tools that we then get to give to other units within Disney. So our team ends up doing work for lots of different arms of Disney. Of course, we do a lot of stuff for the parks uh, because we're housed within the parks and resort segment of the company. Uh, and But then we also do stuff for like Disney Cruise Line or uh, Disney Theatrical Group, which is the Broadway shows. Uh, we also do stuff for the Walt Disney Studios. Uh, pretty much uh, any arm of Disney. So ESPN, ABC, we usually have some sort of project going where we're usually doing something like building an analytical tool. And specifically, our group focuses on the math behind the tools. The hard stuff, right? Well, the fun stuff, <laughs> the fun in my stuff. opinion. Yeah, the fun stuff. <laughs> hard yeah. for some of us. Yeah. Oh, that, that's really cool. So when you think of this term decision science, oh, can you unpack that a little bit? Just what does that really mean to Disney? Well, for for us, it's, it's about uh, a lot of, so a lot of our tools have multiple components, but usually there's like a prediction component where we need to predict what's going to happen based on our decisions. And then there's an optimization component where ultimately we, we want to influence the business to make better decisions. Uh, Disney's a great company to work for because the product is incredible. Like I, you know, I've got great memories it's going to Disney. Magical, I think. It is <laughs> magical. It is magical. So uh, helping a company like that be successful usually means that Disney does more awesome things. So, uh, you know, Disney is going to be opened the new Star Wars land in California, and they're going to be opening one, I think, just next week here in uh, Florida. We got a free preview as uh, cast members. We got to go go see and experience the land, and the ride is incredible. So being uh, on a team that gets to help the business decisions to help make the company successful so that it can continue to do creative, groundbreaking things is really fun. So your team obviously uses a lot of different techniques to help drive some of these use cases and projects. Can you talk about some of the methods that your teams are using to make Disney so successful? Yeah, absolutely. So on our team, uh, we usually kind of have two different backgrounds of individuals on our team. We have some people that come in with like an ORIE background, and uh, they have expertise in some of the traditional optimization methods like linear programming or mixed integer programming. Uh, and then we have other people with more of a stats or machine learning background, and they usually do build models that produce predictions uh, or estimates of causal effects that then go into the uh, optimization algorithm. So we, we kind of split the work in that way by hiring diff- people of different backgrounds. And that's usually what goes into each tool that we build. So what are the ch- some of the challenges when you think about you know, trying to deliver uh, decision support systems and, and automation of those decision support systems with diverse teams like that. What are some of the challenges that your you and your team face? Well, I think one of them is size. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's unique to us. I'm sure everybody deals with size. So once you get, uh, well, especially if you think about like the scope of Walt Disney world, if you think about just like the number of resorts and the number of theme parks that we have just here at Walt Disney world, trying to produce, uh, tools that will deliver optimal decisions for all of the decisions that have to be made for any given problem. Even if it's just simply as like, Oh, we want to make, we want to build a tool for the resorts. Well, 
depending on how you count the resorts here, we have up to, you know, maybe 30 different resorts here. And each resort has potentially like 10 different room types and they've got different seasons. So I think the scale of problems quickly gets out of hand uh, and is, is a challenging problem. So especially on the optimization side, there's a lot of uh, smart guys on our team that have optimization backgrounds that, that are equipped to try and deal with the scope of these problems. Um, and then on the more stats side, I think something that we struggle with a lot is uh, and I don't, th again, I don't think it's unique to us, but it's, it's very difficult to make causal conclusions from data that comes from non-experimental settings. And, uh, so that's always like a constant challenge. I think that, uh, we're, we're always aware of. In what do you mean by that? Help me understand what do you mean? Non-experimental settings. Well, uh, so, well, we, the, the gold standard for causality is usually running a designed experiment mm -hmm. because you, you know you've randomly assigned a treatment and control. And so uh, background factors, at least on average, shouldn't affect your, your outcomes. But when you're making decisions in a business environment and you're not allowed to run experiments, mm -hmm. uh, then it becomes a challenge because, well, you may have business decisions may have been made because they anticipated a certain outcome. Mm -hmm. but, in the, <laughs> but that goes to the point that like, all models are inherently wrong, but many are useful, right? I mean, there's there's an old saying in terms of like data science, like there's no perfect model. There there is no perfect model, but some, but in an experiment, you don't actually have to rely on a model. What Correct. you have to rely on is your yeah. knowledge of the fact that things were randomized, and so and so that can help you. So yes, all models are wrong. The problem is is sometimes you don't know how how wrong they are. <laughs> yeah, and, quantifying that's hard. Yeah, and and what you end up doing is you end up fitting a lot of different models. Uh, and, and you tweak them and you, you look at the results and you're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. And you, you socialize them with other people on, on the team and they're like, oh yeah, that doesn't make sense. You go back to the drawing board, you fit more models. And at the end of the day, do you really know that the model that you produced is the truth? And many times you don't. And so that's kind of what you get. Uh, and so dealing with that, I know there's been a lot of work, uh, lately, uh, that's been, uh, I would say advertise, but that's probably the, the weird, not a weird word, but there's a lot of work in the causal modeling literature late, uh, lately, like uh, from Judea Pearl and others who take this directed acyclic graph approach, where at least in theory, there's this promise that if you have the right underlying causal directed acyclic graph for your, now I'm getting really mathy here, but causal directed acyclic graph, then yes, in theory, you could estimate the right causal effects. The problem is, is when we, we, we try to implement those in practice, oftentimes, Oftentimes when we think, oh yeah, that's the right causal graph. So we should fit that to our data and we should get the right effect. And we do that and we still get results that are a little bit weird, and, right? And when you bring that to the business and say just that, how often do they just say, I have no clue? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, glaze over. I mean it's, a, it's a really theoretical issue. So yeah. we, we, I mean, we, we, sometimes the details aren't, uh, of the theoretical issues aren't as, uh, of all that interesting to our uh, but so how do you work with your stakeholders? Like how is that interaction so that you can translate what you just talked about to something that's meaningful for their outcomes? Well, I think uh, there's including them in the journey is helpful because then they, then they generate a, a healthy understanding of, okay, so this is kind of how statistics works. This is kind of how data science works. And it's, it's not perfect. Um, and so I think they generate a healthy understanding that helps them work better with the tools because they know when they should be skeptical and then they maybe get a better idea of when they feel like they can trust the, the outcome. And I think it's always healthy for everyone, at least until we figure out all these different problems that, you know, come up in data science that to have a certain amount of healthy skepticism with, uh, uh, the, the stuff that comes out of data science and analytical models.
So last year at Disney's Data and Analytics Conference, you gave a talk about reality versus hype of AI. Uh, a year later, where do you think we are in that hype cycle? Have we changed anything? Are we still there? And then just where do you think, where do you think we were last year and this year? Uh, well, so let me, so it actually kind of relates to, to part of my talk that I gave this year. And, and I think part of the reason why there's uh, maybe some hype with AI and ML that maybe is not necessarily founded is like, I, I don't think that the terminology is clear. And that's been frustrating. And so actually part of my talk this year, I made the argument that there's this notion out there that machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence. And if you do a, just a Google search on machine learning versus artificial intelligence, you will see any number of articles that show in a plot that shows like artificial intelligence as the big circle and machine learning as the small circle and it's contained within artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been confusing because if you look at machine learning textbooks, you will see stuff like linear regression mm -hmm. and logistic regression, stuff that was invented in the 1800s before people were thinking about programming computers to be intelligent, right? Mm -hmm. And they weren't developed for that, for that reason. And so I, I think if you actually just look at the history of the methods that we call machine learning, it doesn't make sense to call them AI. And yet now everybody's calling everything AI. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of frustrating and has led to maybe confusion, maybe hype. I don't know. Every model is AI. You build a model and that's AI right it, there. Yeah, yeah. It's AI because, well, I wanted my computer to do it. And that's <laughs> what AI is, is we, it's anything I could want my computer to do. I, I do mean, a lot you of You still AI. have to teach yeah. your computer to do it and update it every day, but it's still AI, still. Yeah, so I, I argued in my, uh, in my talk that machine learning is not a subset of AI and we shouldn't think about it that way because it can lead to confusion. And I, I did my best to cite uh, some experts in the field. There's a paper by Pat Langley called, uh, and he was the original editor of the journal Machine Learning. And it's called The Changing Science of Machine Learning. And uh, I, he has some great quotes in there where he, he was kind of reflecting on how the field has evolved and that it, it kind of made this break in maybe the 90s and, and in the 2000s. It kind of became hyper-focused uh, on prediction problems mm -hmm. and kind of broke away from its more traditional AI roots. And so I, I think it's healthier to think about machine learning as more focused on prediction these days. I know there's a complication that you have reinforcement learning, which in my opinion is more closely related to like optimization methods like that you would find in OR programs, like, you know, linear programming or mixed integer programming or dynamic programming. Uh, in fact, more close cousins to that. Um, where, and then there's the rest of machine learning, which is hyper-focused on prediction. And it's not necessarily prediction with the goal of being AI either. No, it's prediction in terms of, we want to find that one metric that can help make those decisions more yes. effective for business, for business outcome. And I don't even care that they're being done by a computer. Yeah. Right. Just give me a model. Just, I need the model. <laughs> I need to make a business decision and it doesn't matter to me whether it's done on a computer or if you pull it from uh, the sky, as long as it's. <laughs> I think they call that the cloud, yeah. by the way. The cloud. Okay. You pull it yes, from the cloud. <laughs> do you see as the hype cycle for AI is increasing more almost, I don't want to say bad practices, but more. Uh, people just associating AI with everything. And what do you think that's going to do to impact just data science in general? There's probably going to be burnout, I think, at some point is my, is my guess. I mean, definitely there's many things that were developed in the AI community that were very hard problems that all of a sudden very quickly became what seemed to be easy problems, like the computer vision thing. Uh, last year, my talk focused on uh, ImageNet. I talked a little bit about the history and about how, at what point, wh where, where it was. And this, 
a lot of my talks are based on like something that I just want to know. It's like, okay, last year was like, where, where did all this AI stuff come from? Yeah. And so I, I looked it up and found, oh, there was this ImageNet competition and uh, it was actually really difficult. And then all of a sudden one year it wasn't anymore. And then the, the winning method became the thing to do. And, and that's now we're all talking about deep learning and uh, supposedly some of the natural language processing stuff that's happened with that uh, recently has uh, actually happened a little bit before that time. But uh, that was kind of the big moment where all of this stuff took off and really difficult problems in AI became really easy. And then all of a sudden people started using them for reinforcement learning. So that kind of contributed to the hype. But uh, I don't know. I, th I think at some point uh, it'll take some other big, big moment uh, to push the next big uh, evolution. And uh, I think for right now, maybe, I don't know. Anytime you make a prediction, you end up like this. You kind of end up looking like a dope because it could totally play out. But wrong, it gives but us something at least to go back and talk yeah, about. Yeah, a year later, that's true. Either rate is very high that's or true. very, very low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like deep learning is becoming the next big buzzword that everyone's just associating. Everything data science is deep learning at this point. And can you talk a little bit about and what you think deep learning is and how you define it and kind of how that differs between machine learning and some of the other techniques out there? Yeah, I just define deep learning as uh, some of these really interesting neural networks. Uh, that were devised to solve computer vision problems or natural language processing problems that all of a sudden become uh, because people were clever and how they figured out how to fit these models with interesting optimization techniques like, you know, Atom Optimizer and, uh, and then the computing power. And all of a sudden it got really good. Uh, researchers got really good at solving some of these very difficult problems. So that's what I, that's what I consider deep learning. And if you have a computer vision problem, it's likely that you're using deep learning already because yeah. there's, there's really no competitor to it, at least as far yeah, as I can tell. The best. And we, and, and there are stuff, uh, so like I said, in, in our department, we we're working on these different problems and there are problems that we're trying to, you know, incubate and see, okay, what is this new method? Can we do something with this new method? Mm -hmm. And so things that we're lurking, looking at now are, well, let's use some of these, uh, fancier neural networks or attention-based networks for, um, for some natural language processing problems that we have and how well are they doing? And they're doing great. They're beating competitors, but they're still not to the point where we could convince a client, uh, maybe to use them. And so, so I think, so I think there's some, uh, you know, dose of reality there still, uh, in that the methods aren't solving everything, at least right now, although they're very good and better than what came before. Well, yeah, I mean, we're kind of in this, uh, I've heard it called two things. Like there's the post Moore's law world where, you know, CPU isn't getting faster, but now there's the Moore's law of machine learning papers and methods. Like yeah, yeah. They're doubling every month, it seems like. Yeah. The other is the, it's the Cambrian explosion of machine learning is that we're in right now. All buzzwords though, right? Yeah, I yeah. know you love buzzwords. <laughs> yes, please. So you did a session this week called uh, the How to Fool Yourself with Statistics and Machine Learning. Tell us a little bit about more about what that session, what you were arguing for or against in that session. So, okay, so that, that session actually, it was probably, it's interesting how talks evolve when you first propose a talk and then it gets accepted and then you actually start doing the research for the talk. Mm -hmm. it, involves into, it evolves into something that maybe you didn't originally intend. So it, it kind of evolved into this two, two talks crammed into one. Uh, but the first part of the talk, I wanted to talk about, uh, I, I actually focused on the first part of my talk about a, a famous paper from uh, Ed Lemer, who's an economist from UCLA. And he wrote this famous paper called, Let's Take the Con Out of Econometrics. And he talked about how in, a, in econometrics, and this happens in other areas that use, uh, you know, try to estimate causal effects, is that you end up, like we talked before, fitting many different statistical models, and then you kind of settle on the one that you feel like is appropriate. And uh, he used this really interesting example in his paper of a, uh, 
of a data set where he tried to estimate what is the deterrent effect of capital punishment. And he had all these variables in his data set that he could include in his model. Mm -hmm. And he fit different models and basically showed that the, that the deterrent effect, uh, according to the data and the models that you fit, it varies wildly. Mm -hmm. So which one of those is right? And the answer is we don't know. Yeah. Uh, now, I know there's been research that's been done since that. And so maybe there's researchers out there who are doing that, maybe argue that they found the right answer. But to me, it looked like the research just ping pongs back and forth. Oh, there is an effect. Oh, no, th no, there isn't. And nobody has created a consensus because everybody knows that there's this uh, flaw with the modeling in that it just depends on kind of how you decided to model that. Mm -hmm. um, so there was that component. And then I also talked a little bit about uh, the replication crisis in science right now. Uh, so you could argue that, well, the, the problem with the, the capital punishment study was that it was observational data. It didn't come from an experiment. Well, now we're finding that a lot of things that came from experiments are not replicating. So when researchers try to replicate some of these famous results, these results that hit uh, uh, pop psychology textbooks and, and make a splash in the news that a lot of them don't, don't end up replicating when researchers try to do an exact replication. And uh, so I, I talked about that and just more of a warning of like, you have to have some amount of uh, healthy dose of skepticism when for whatever comes out of your models. So that was the first part. And then the second part we kind of already talked about, which was I, I, I kind of went into the, uh, the details of machine learning and how the terminology is used. Uh, and I started with this idea that artificial intelligence contains machine learning and showed that if that's the case, then you end up calling a bunch of stuff that you learned in stats 101, artificial intelligence, and that doesn't seem like the right thing. Uh, and don't, so then- Don't rob me of that. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry to ruin Everything your world. Is world Everything yes. is AI. Everything is AI. So, uh, and, and then, so I made my argument that it's not the, the case. And uh, uh, anyway, I think it was cathartic, certainly for me, but I had people come up and talk to me afterwards and I felt like it was cathartic for them to hear somebody say that out loud. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure we know what it already is. What is the biggest buzzword today in data science? Yeah, well, the biggest thing is this AI slash ML that I see yeah. people doing. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's no longer just artificial intelligence. It's no longer machine learning. It's AI slash ML, which I don't even know what people really mean. Well, by let's that. just put so many terms into one term so that we catch yeah, everything. Yeah. So that <laughs> way we don't off. get made fun of by other people. The That'd next be, yeah. buzzword, we will uh, shorten it by, with, into two letters and we'll add a slash to it. It'll be AI slash ML slash whatever DL. Yeah. Yes, DL. Oh, there we go. Slash we go. DS for data science. There we go. Yep, there we go. OMG. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your favorite buzzword out there other than AI slash ML uh, or most hated? Who knows? I, I, so I don't know if it could be called a buzzword, um, but my favorite I think one thing I'm very interested in uh, because it's such a challenging thing is causality. Yep. And uh, so I, there's a lot of, there's a, it's a great time to be studying causality right now because I feel like there's a lot out there that's exploding in the literature and a lot of advancements that have happened to help understand uh, how, how we can and can't get causal uh, uh, conclusions from data that didn't come from an experiment. Like I mentioned, I think I mentioned earlier, a lot of Jutea Pearl's work. Um, but I, I also think that that has to come with a, a healthy dose of skepticism as well to it's even though in theory it, it it supposedly works it's been difficult to apply in practice so but i think it's a i think that's like a fundamental problem to almost everything that we deal with is like we want to know what are if i do this what will happen mm -hmm. and that's huge for businesses and uh because it feeds, you know, any optimization you want to do it kind of presupposes that you know what will happen when you make different decisions and if 
that's that's asking about the causal effects. Yeah. Are you concerned at all about the the just the rampant rampant adoption of AI and model driven activities in so many decision support systems today? Not not you know outside the context of the the Disney organization, but just in general in your life as you go through your life. Are you concerned about how people are adopting these technologies without some of that healthy dose of skepticism? Well, yes and no. I mean, if they are using it where they're trying to get, where they're actually treating it as if they got something causal, then that's a concern. But a lot of a lot of progress can be made just in pure prediction problems, you know? And so computer vision is a great example. There's nothing really causal about that. It's just, does this pattern of uh, pixels in an image Ha, contain contain a dog, and I just need to predict that, mm -hmm. uh, or a cat, or whatever. And so a lot of a lot of really cool uh, progress can just be made purely on a prediction, raw prediction problem. So some of the things, I, I am concerned. Obviously, that's why part of my talk was referencing the con of a, out of econometrics mm -hmm. paper from Ed Lemer. Um, but uh, but good prediction can just be good in and of itself too. So. Yeah, people can be confused if they treat models that were purely predictive as causal, but uh, there's lots of good stuff that's just purely predictive too. Yeah. So what do you think is the next year to two years look like for data science from a trend? Oh, this, is where I, this is where I get into trouble. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know. Uh, yeah, these things are hard to predict. Uh, we won't hold you to it, obviously. You know, we'll only make fun of you a little bit a year from now or two years from now. Well, maybe maybe let's spin it this way. What what's what's next for you? Like, what are you thinking about, and what are you wanting to go learn more about as you continue to become a you know a, you continue your journey as a practicing data scientist and decision support professional? Uh, that's a good question. I I would like to study more. Uh, it's it's actually kind of funny because I as a statistician, I so in statistics departments you can get in to very like traditional statistics department that like came out of uh, agricultural departments where it's like, we're going to define, we're going to design a field experiment and here's your plots of land and we're going to divide it up this way. And they talk about experimental design. And for me, I, I hated those classes in school. I thought design of experiments was incredibly boring. Uh, and, but I ended up having to take a lot of them because I went to kind of some ag schools. Uh, and uh, now I've kind of come full circle. I, I'm less uh, confident that I can get lots of good information from uh, just modeling things mm -hmm. uh, that didn't come from an experiment. And so now I've kind of come full circle. I'm now very passionately interested in design of experiments mm -hmm. and how do we design experiments in very, uh, in very difficult cases where it's very hard to design an experiment. And uh, we actually had a speaker here uh, at the conference this year, uh, Ido Iroldi from uh, Temple University, who talked about designing experiments when uh, the treatment that you assign to uh, one individual could impact the effects on, on a, a neighboring individual. And he's proposed some interesting things that I, I hope to investigate further. We've learned a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal. In a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. Pew, pew. What is the latest book that you've read that you would recommend to our listeners? Ah, uh, I've only been able to read things related to my talk over the last few months. So it's going to be one uh, from, from my talk, but basically uh, I would say uncontrolled. I think Jim Manzi is the author, but again, he's, again, he's talking about experiments. Yeah. Okay. And I, cool. I like he, he's come up with some uh, interesting terminology like causally dense 
is one of the terms that he came up that I think is uh, impactful. That's a that's a deep word, man. Yeah, I dig that. It sounds deep. So, so you had a chance to talk at the conference, but if you had a chance to pick a song that was playing as you walked on stage, what would that song be? Oh, uh, uh, there is a song off of a Stone Roses album, and I don't think the song was very popular, but there's a point in that song where it, it starts out, it's, the song's called Breaking, I think it's called Breaking Into Heaven. Yeah. There's, it starts out with like four minutes of just like jungle sounds and maybe these kind of just subtle drum beats. And then all of a sudden out of, uh, out of this chaos evolves this like uh, deep, funky guitar. It's super awesome. It's like right about the four minute mark, but- All right. That's the point I would want to walk out on at stage. That point. At that, yeah, I was right say, at that point. Yeah, right at that point. Four minutes is a long walk. Well, I was yeah, going to say yeah. four minutes is like everybody <laughs> getting seated. They're like, what are these yeah, sounds? Yeah, exactly. Where I are like we that. right now? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. But it is really, it is groovy. Yeah. Dig it. Groovy. I like it. So what is your biggest personal money pit right now? Four children? Yeah, that's what, <laughs> that, that matters. Children. Yeah. So is there a, <laughs> is there a piece of technology that's making your life worse today? Um... Ah, well, kind of going back to the money pit, I'm, I'm a sucker for textbooks. I end up spending an inordinate amount of, of textbooks, uh, of, of money on textbooks. And, uh, so I don't know. And the fact that I can, the fact that I can buy a textbook and put it on a Kindle, a Kindle mm -hmm. version or something oh, like yeah. that just means that I don't have to worry about storing the textbook. So there's, there's, it's, less of a cost because I don't have to worry about storing it. So I don't know, maybe, maybe uh, e-readers is a <laughs> piece of technology because then I just spend more on textbooks. Are there any shows that you're binging on right now? Uh, well, not very many because I've spent most of my time trying to research for my talk, but there, I, I did binge a while on some HBO documentaries. So there's some really interesting uh, like true crime ones. There was like, I love you now die. I know these are kind of morbid, but it's like, and then there was another one like who killed Garrett Phillips. And then there was like Jihadi John. And then, uh, and then totally different than those is uh, a Muhammad Ali documentary, which yeah. I thought was awesome. That's awesome. Man. Yeah. So uh, in your, uh, in your professional life or personal life, are you going anywhere interesting soon? Uh, we we're doing a staycation. Like in a, in a week, we're going to stay at the beach club here on property and they have one of the best pools on campus. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They got a nice lazy river and they've got a sand bottom portion of the pool. That's awesome. It's, that's awesome. It's awesome. With four kids, that's awesome. Staycation. Yes. I totally understand that. Well, McKay, it's been awesome to have you on the Big Data Beard podcast and thanks for hosting us at uh, Disney's Data Analytics Conference 2019. No problem. Great to be here. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard podcast. The music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. Check him out on iTunes or Spotify. And be sure to smash that thumbs up button so we can keep the episodes coming. Until next time, keep being awesome.